Amen. Friends, as you are finding your seat, would you take your Bibles and let's turn together to 1 Corinthians 12. It's going to be a key text for us this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We'll pick up in verse 12 itself. So 12, 12 in 1 Corinthians. And I want to let you know that we're taking, Ronnie mentioned it, but we're taking the next six weeks uh, to, to have a brief look at some of the distinctives of our church, some things that are very important about who we are and about what we do. And it's going to be a little different from our normal pattern. Our normal pattern is that we exposit systematically. Uh, we, we do exposition straight through books, every chapter of the book, working our way through. And we tend to alternate from Old Testament books to New Testament books and back again. Um, we seek to apply all that we find in God's Word to our lives. And that's our, our normal pattern. And we're going to return to that uh, in just a few weeks. And I'm really excited about where we're headed. Uh, look at the Gospel of Matthew. I had the opportunity to spend just a little bit of time doing some pre uh, preliminary work this week, and I'm just very excited about what we're going to find there. But for several reasons, it's very important that we take just a short season together, uh, just a few weeks to revisit some of the church's theological foundations and some of our doctrine and practice that we, that we hold closely to us. One reason is that we don't want anybody here just making assumptions about why we do what we do or who we are. Uh, having it explicitly laid out before us gives us the opportunity uh, for those who are new to have some clarity about who we are and why we do the things that we do. Another reason is that that that, that very clarity can foster unity among us. It can knit our hearts together as we seek to serve in the same direction. Uh, we, we want even those who are, have been longtime members to be reminded of who we are and why we do what we do in order that we might unite together in that work. And one final reason that I really am excited about doing this together is, that, is it's kind of a personal hope that as we do this, as, as the Lord has granted us this new space to do ministry and this new location and, and many from the community are even beginning to come and, and see what's going on here, I would love to see the Lord establish among us joyfulness in service in a, in a direction to Together. It seems good to me that we might lay groundwork for the coming years that generation to generation some of these truths would be held on to. So for the next few weeks, um, instead of just focusing on one text, we're going to use a lot of Scripture. So it might be wise to just go ahead and set in your mind that for the next few weeks you're going to want to keep a nimble finger about flipping through pages or that you just jot down references. That might be the better way to do it is that you have something handy to write with and that you write down a lot of the texts that we might bring to you because they will be, they will be helpful. These messages are going to function a lot more like what we would call systematic theology than necessary straight exposition where we'll take many scriptures and apply them to one idea from the Bible and draw that out from those scriptures. We're going to take a specific question or theme and then formulate our theology based on that. That's what systematic theology seeks to do. Uh, one note you might note is that we're not going to say everything that we could say about each of these topics. Each of these topics may be worth a series in themselves, but we'll limit ourselves to, to just one session as we go through them. We want to encourage all of you who are new to Basswood, we're so glad you're here, to consider who we are. And really, as you consider where the Lord is calling you to serve and where He wants you to invest your time and your life, that you would actually listen very carefully with ears ready to respond to the Lord. These are, these are opportunities for you to grow and learn, but also opportunities for you to seek the Lord about where He would have you serve and unite together with and for those, again, who are covenant members, this functions something like attending somebody else's wedding ceremony. You know, you go to somebody else's wedding ceremony and you're reminded, I, I, I want to be everything that they're promising up there. I, I, I mean all of that when they say it. And in the same way as covenant members, as we go through this, this is a reminder about who we want to be as a church and the way that we want to serve each other. And I want to call on you to recommit yourself to serve the body in all of these ways. So that's just a little background before we dive into the text that we're going to look at today. But let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I'm going to read for us uh, verses 12 through 27 as a background for, for all that we're going to be uh, thinking about today. Paul writes, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, 
but many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God has arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts and yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And, the, and on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow greater honor. And on our unpresentable parts, or, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. This is the word of the Lord. Well, in today's message, I'm hoping to communicate to you that we are a church. That's what this is. We are a church and that we believe here that membership matters, that that is very important for us. At the core of who we are at Basswood Church is a truth that is so deep, so profound, and so good that it unites families. Mark mentioned it before. It unites families that are diverse in who we are with families that are from other places in the world. Socioeconomic backgrounds and all kinds of other things do not matter in this group. They're not what unites us together. We are, we are not sharing, many of us don't share a neighborhood. We don't share a carpool. We don't share a favorite cuisine. What makes a church a church in all times and all places well, that's something that we need to think about. What is it that makes us a church as opposed to any other organization? Is this a church or is this a social club or a political action group? Is that who we are? Is it a supper club that has a, a twice a month schedule? What is it that we are? I wanna look at that together as a group. And, and once we understand what the church is, I think it's appropriate for us to ask the question, how does an individual then respond in light of what is true about what a church is? So I'm gonna put my cards all out on the table right here in front of you at the beginning of the next six weeks. I believe that what God is doing here at Basswood Church, here among us by his spirit is amazing. I think he is doing a good work and I think it matters. I believe who we are and what we do absolutely matters. And it doesn't just matter here on earth, it matters eternally, that there's eternal weight to what we are doing. It matters so much. I and Ronnie and the elders and many of you are giving your whole lives to see the Lord do that work among us. So I am very excited about what the next six, six weeks might unfold before us. And I'm praying that it will serve all of us to strengthen the body and bring glory to the Lord. Well, after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the next two big things that happened historically were the ascension of Jesus and the giving of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And you can read all about that in Acts chapter one and chapter two. That'll give you a little bit of background. And those events themselves began the period, uh, began the, 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 uh, the in, inaugurated the season uh, when the Holy Spirit of God was granted to every single believer and where those individual believers were called out of the world and into gatherings or assemblies for worship and instruction and fellowship and ministry 
ministry for sharing all that we have and sharing the good news with those who have not yet heard. And those, those little communities or assemblies, those, those groups that were called out and called together were spirit-created. They were spirit-led and they were spirit-kept groups of people who had all come to know one enormous truth about the grace of God through Christ. It is the gospel that initiated the church. It is the gospel that, that really began the, 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 the experience of the church in the life of God's people. The New Testament makes it plain that the church is not just some happy coincidence or some pragmatic solution to a logistics or distribution problem. It was not just God's answer to that. In fact, the church is God's plan to distribute the gospel, of course, but it is his plan to accomplish his purposes in his world until his son returns. You see, there is no plan B to the church, biblically speaking. There's nothing like it. There's no substitute for it. There's, there, there's, God designed and intends that the church would be the means that he uses to accomplish the spreading of the gospel and the shaping of his people until his son returns. So this morning, I want to ask and answer two big questions, primary questions. What is a church? And is church membership biblical? We're going to take uh, some time among there to make some personal applications as we go through that I hope will be helpful to you. So what is a church? Well, the theologian Wayne Grudem describes a church this way. He defines it in his systematic theology, the community of all true believers for all time. The community of all true believers for all time. R.C. Sproul looks instead to the Nicene Creed to define the church. He says, historically, via the ancient Church Council of Nicaea, the church has been defined with four key words. It is one, holy, Catholic, we'll define that in a minute, and apostolic. Another pastor answered the question this way, what's a church? He said, it's the institution which Jesus created and authorized to pronounce the gospel of the kingdom, to affirm gospel professors, people who profess Christ, and to oversee their discipleship and to expose imposters. That's a part of what the church is called to do. We're Bible people and we care what the Bible says about what the church is. The church in the Bible, the word you may have heard before, lots of trendy churches use this kind of lingo. They'll pull the Greek out and, and that's supposed to make, I think, maybe a more authentic title for a church. But it is called ekklesia. Maybe you've heard that Greek word before. And it's formed with two parts. It's got a prefix, which is ek, which means from or out of. And it's klesia. That part comes from a word kaleo, which means to call. So we were called out of or called into, uh, called out of or called from the world and into a specific place. Well, that's the group of God, that, the, the group that God, by His grace, has called out of their sins and called into family together as His church. So a church is not merely a location on a map. You've probably heard that said before. It's not just a place that you go. It's not an, a web address or an internet stream that you pull up. The church is more than that. It's, it's different than that. And the thing that makes the church is first and foremost the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the gospel that makes the church. How? Well, God created a, a perfect world. You know this. You've heard this before, I believe. God created a, a perfect world into which our first parents and then all of us have sought to do things our own way. We, we pushed back on God, which is itself the essence of sin. We, we've sought to do things our way. Even though he was perfect in wisdom and in love toward us, we did not receive that. We sought to live for ourselves. And so we rebelled against him. So it would be right, if that's the case, it would be right for God to bring judgment on every human being on the earth without exception if every one of us has sinned. And it would be right for him to do that without exception. But God loves sinners. Is that amazing news to you? That God loves sinners. That's an amazing thing to say. John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Who's the whoever there? There's nothing but sinners to choose from. It's just sinners. First John 3.16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. God loves 
sinners. And because his son came to us and lived for us and died in our place, we can know God's love, actually. That's amazing news. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we, the sinful ones, might become the righteousness of God. The thing is, he didn't just save individuals in silos. He actually saved people and brought them together. Ephesians 1.22 tells us that he put all things under his feet and gave him, that's Christ, as head over all things to the church. So all of this is done to this one group of people. The church is God's. It is his design. It is created by him and for his glory. And God is building his his whole church with individuals that he is saving and shaping and using for his glory. He's doing that. Matthew 16, 18 tells us when, Peter turn, or when Jesus turns to Peter and says, I tell you, you are Peter. And he gives him this big statement. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus is doing the building in that particular passage. And the the passage we opened with in 1 Corinthians 12 makes it plain that he's doing that one believer at a time, but he's bringing us into a body. That last verse, 1 Corinthians 12, 27 says, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. So you see the union that we have there with Christ. Now, before we go any further, if you are our guest here today and you've never tasted the love of God in the way that I've just described, that you've, you've never recognized that, you've been for, that you could be forgiven of your sins, that in Christ you could have all of your sins forgiven, and that you could be called into God's family. Can I just offer you the sweetest invitation? Can I just offer you to taste and see that the Lord is good, to come to Christ even now? He is so kind, even if you are sure that you are the exception to the rule, even if you're here today and you think, no, 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 Matt, you don't understand. I've sinned in such a way or I've sinned with such frequency that I'm the exception to the rule that God would show love to sinners. Well, everything in God's word tells us that you're wrong and he's right, (laughs) that he actually does save sinners and that you could turn today and find that he would show you love and grace and mercy and forgiveness even today. His love is for any sinner that will turn from their sins, any single one. And that turning simply means turning away from our sin and turning to Christ. It means turning away from any hope that we have in saving ourselves or justifying ourselves and turning to Jesus as the only hope we have to be saved and to be justified. So could I ask you a question? First application of the day. Why wouldn't you do that today? What would keep you from making that choice today? from turning in repentance and faith toward Christ, friend, you will find his arms of love open wide for any sinner that will come. So the church is is, is this group that's been just like that, created and redeemed by the work of the Father in the Son. The gospel has changed our hearts. Men, women, boys, and girls have been affected by the gospel and have been brought into this family, and we are now the church. And in that sense, the true church is sometimes called the invisible church. That doesn't mean necessarily that it's like you got some cloaking device on it. Uh, The invisible church, that phrase just means the church as God sees it, not the church that we see with our eyes. It's it's the, the church at the level of the heart. That is the true church all over the world in all times and all places. But what makes a church a church in the second place is that there are actual physical people who have committed to each other to love each other in specific ways according to what the word has commanded. Rescued sinners show the love that God has shown them to each other in fellowship and communion. We, we offer forgiveness and exhortation. We, we repent of our sins and allow others to repent of theirs. We, we seek to obey and encourage others in that obedience as well. And in that sense, as it works out member to member in a specific location, the church is not just invisible, it is also visible. It is something that we can see with our eyes. We can see who we are committed to and who is committed to us. So I think the church can rightly, historically, be called both invisible and visible. Now, I would just note, there are a lot of people today who are committed to that invisible idea of the church, but not so much the visible. The visible. 
And I think that's a problem. And I think that's unbiblical. I think they, they, they actually don't want to commit to any specific people that they've seen with their eyes. They never put their, their own name on the line of accountability and say to another Christian, I'm with you. Now, historically, a legitimate church is where the word of God is, is rightly taught and the ordinances that we spoke of in catechism today are rightly practiced. But that's a bare minimum, I think. We say in the Apostles' Creed, there's a line that says that we or I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church. And at most times, I always kind of smile a little because everybody in the room gets a little uncomfortable. Like, we're a Baptist church. Why do we just say that we believe in the Catholic Church? I don't understand what that's about. And if you've got a bulletin, we try to put a little asterisk by that so you can see there's a little helpful explainer under, underneath. But the word Catholic historically only means universal. That's what the word Catholic, lowercase c, means. Universal. I believe that God is building one church over all times and all places that is the true church, that he's doing that, the holy Catholic church that has nothing to do with the church in Rome with whom we have major theological problems and differences. That lowercase c Catholic just means that we believe God is building one single body of his people throughout all times and all places. I mentioned R.C. Sproul's quote a second ago. The Nicene Creed itself that he referred to says it this way. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeded from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spake by the prophets. And I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. So the Nicene formulation works like this. It's one. That means God is making one body for himself. It's holy. That means it's set apart by God's grace, called out of the world and called into uh, his glorious light. So it's one, holy. It's Catholic. That is all times and all places, right? And, or universal. And it's apostolic. That means it teaches what Jesus taught the apostles. That's what the Nicene Creed is saying. And so the earliest creeds of Christendom all point to these big truths about what the church is. The 1689 Second London Baptist Confession of Faith said that, says it this way. The Catholic or universal church, with respect to the internal work of the Spirit and truth of grace, may be called invisible. It consists of the whole number of the elect that have been, are, or shall be gathered into one under Christ, the head thereof, and is the spouse, the body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. So those are meaty, historical examples about what the church is. Those are great, big theological things, Matt. We got our church history lesson for the day. And those are big, meaty things. But how does the Bible look at the church? Does it give us one static definition uh, that, that is a single uh, word that we could find uh, to, to define the church? The church is dot, dot, dot. And it, it, it does not give us one single thing. It gives us a bunch of pictures that help us understand the fullness of what the church is. The Lord in his wisdom has granted us multiple illustrations and ways of thinking about what the church is that gives us pictures and fullness to what the church is. Well, let me give you just a handful of the, the uh, pictures that the Bible uses to describe the church. And I'm going to move quickly through this so you might want to just jot down the references as I go here so you can go back and verify the things that I'm saying. The key pictures that the Bible uses to describe the church are a building like a facility, a, a, a building. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22 say, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 3.9 says, we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. So there's a picture of a building, that God is building a building, and that's what a church is, but it's not just a physical facility, it's the building made up of the people of God. A body is the second image, and we, we looked at that in 1 Corinthians 12, but Romans 12, verses 4 and 5 also give us that exact same picture, as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, 
Christ and individually members one of another. You can also uh, look to what we read in 1 Corinthians 12. Uh, but a body is a picture. So as you've got fingers, you've got ears, you've got, you've got a, a cranium, you've, you've got toes, and all those things are you. You're one body with many different parts to it. That's another picture the Bible gives. Another picture is a flock. Jesus spoke in John 10 of being the good shepherd that lays down his life for the sheep. And in verses 11 through 15, I'll read just as 14 and 15, he says, I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. He's dying for his people, the sheep. In Acts 20, uh, this, is, this is Paul speaking to the Ephesian elders and he tells them to pay careful attention uh, to yourselves and to all the flock. That's in verse 28, where he's telling them to watch out for the flock. And who's that flock? It's the church, the specific church that those elders were going to see over. First Peter 5 says very much the same thing. So we are also a flock. And that's why the word pastor actually makes sense. That's one of those words that sort of means shepherd. And so pastor makes sense of a flock. And we're under shepherds as pastors uh, here. Another illustration that the Bible uses is that of a family or a household. In the same way that there are many members in your family, but you are one family, in the same way we are many members but one household, one family of God. 1 Peter 4, 17, 1 Timothy 3, 15, and Hebrews 3, 6 all give those as illustrations. Hebrews 3, 6 says, Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast to our confidence and our boasting and hope. And then maybe the most familiar image that you probably have already thought about, we sing about it from time to time, it, it comes into our language fairly frequently, is the picture of a bride. The picture of a bride. You can see that in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 and following. Uh, but let me just draw for you uh, Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in uh, verse 31, where he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And he says this, the mystery is profound. And I am saying this mystery of man and wife, that this refers to Christ in the church. So there's a picture given for us of a bride. Second Corinthians 11, two says, I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you. And Paul didn't marry them. In fact, he just brought the gospel to them. But in that act where they committed to Christ, I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. And then the picture of the book of Revelation, where at the very end of time in Revelation 19, verses 7 and 8, where we see uh, the, the bride being, being uh, prepared or, or brought forward in her glory. And, and, uh, and it says in verse 7, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. And the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. It's about the church. It's about the church. And so the picture there is that we are a bride. So all those parts, all of those particular illustrations, that we are a body, that we are a flock, that, that we are a household, that, that we actually are a building, and that we are a bride, all of those images are meant to teach us what the church is and how it functions. And I, I want to note three observations about all of those illustrations that sort of carry through all of them. Do you notice that all of them, uh, it, it, that all of those images imply identifiable parts? There are people that are in it or not in it. You're either a part of the family or you're not. You're either the bride or you're not. You're either a part of the body or you're not. They're also, uh, those things work together. They cohere. You can't have them broken up and still have them function. Uh, and they also depend on each other. And so in that way, I would say there is clarity, there is unity, and there is accountability in all of those illustrations built into them. They're identifiable parts that work together. The church always has identifiable people who have committed to each other as a part of the whole and are accountable to each other. That, that is just the essence of who we are and how we function as a church. The church is God's bride, a redeemed people, a flock led by him, a family adopted and assembled by his grace, a building of living stones that he's assembling, and the church is his very own body, friends. But it's more than that. Can I just say, just give me a little liberty here to say that the church is beautiful, and I know, I know that we live in times where the failures of the church broadly all over the world are regularly made much of. They are examined and they are, they are prodded and they are real. They are to be grieved. But the church, in her essence, as the blood-bought people of God, is beautiful beyond words. Beautiful beyond words. 
And in the, in the same way that a bride and a groom share a, a, a love that is deep and beautiful, that unites them, the church and Jesus share a deep and beautiful union in their indivisible love. You see, the church is a public display of the love of God. It's a, it's a public, visible example of the love of God. And it is this place where hope abounds. It's the most beautiful and unique place on earth. People who just met today could find that they've been united for years in Jesus Christ. People in this room from different backgrounds and situations, from different nations and even who, who speak different languages find that they are actually one family in Christ. This is not just a place to be on, some, on Sunday. It's not just a thing to do. This is a family, a family that God has made and is continuing to make. It's a place where forgiven people practice forgiveness with each other. It's a place where broken people don't have to hide because other broken people point them to the source of hope and healing. It's a place where imperfect moms and dads and wives and husbands and children all of who fear coming out into the light find that you can come out into the light here because you're among people who have been shown grace and who are practicing showing grace to others. And the Lord offers grace to each of us. The church is beautiful. It is truly a glorious, blood-bought family. We are a bride whose groom loves her so much that he gave his life for her. So the first thing that we want you to know about Basswood is that we are a church. We are a church. Mike, Mike Horton said, a church is not a group of friends that you've picked. It's the group of brothers and sisters that God has picked for you. <laughs> I think it's a very helpful way to think about our time together. Vodi Bakum has said on several occasions, if a person doesn't love the church, they don't love Jesus. It's that simple. Kevin DeYoung said that a man who attempts Christianity without the church shoots himself in the foot, shoots his children in the leg, and shoots his grandchildren in the heart. So I've got a, an application question for you about the fact that we are a church. Are you a part of the universal, the invisible church of God? Have you become a part of God's family? Have you turned in repentance from your sins and been received as a son or a daughter through Christ? I just call on you again to consider you could today do that. Today, even the littlest one in this room who can understand that message could turn in repentance and faith. I also want to encourage you to examine your view of the church. What's your view of the church? What do you think a church is? Re-examine that. Call that to mind. What, what do you think a church is and what is it for? Is it merely a loose association of people who share some kind of convictional uh, issues about politics and about the way families ought to work and some other things about God? Or are we actually a family? Those would be two different things. Those are not identical. Aside from your feelings about the church, do you, do you love the church? Now, I say aside from your feelings, because I mean, it'd be easy to say, well, yeah, I love the church. The church is great. I'm so thankful for the church. But is there any evidence in your life? Could, could anybody listen to the way you talk week after week and assume, man, that is a person who loves the church? How do we talk about the bride of Christ? Does, does our tongue easily issue criticism and critique of the bride of Christ, others in it? Do we feel a freedom to slander the bride of Jesus even when we know Jesus is listening? I think there's plenty to critique. There, there, are, there always will be. But could I encourage you, if you find this morning your love for the church on kind of a low point in your life, could I just encourage you to pray and ask the Lord to inflame a love for his people and for the church, for his bride? That's what I want, to, I want us to become the kind of church that are so thankful for God's rescue and, and so thankful for the people that he has given to us that, that our joy actually constrains our whiny hearts, that actually our, our joy causes us to, to, just, to just, you know what? I, I, know, I know there are things that are happening that, at times that you think, man, why is that happening? I know, that, that's called life, right? But I want to be somebody who's known as somebody who loves the bride of Christ, 
who's so thankful to be called into the family of God, and who's seeking the good of all those around me, even by the way that I communicate about the church. So friends, love the church. She's Christ's bride. So that's the big question. The next question is practical. Then, then if that's what a church is, is church membership biblical? Well, one of the most common rebuttals given to the concept of formal church membership at the local level is that Scripture nowhere says these words, thou shalt join a local church, right? There's never the command given in that way with those words. And so people go, well, then I guess I'm free not to do that, right? So it doesn't say it just like that anywhere in the Bible. So I guess that I have no, uh, no obligation to do that. And I will concede there is no command written precisely like that in the New Testament. But I will also note that the Trinity never appears by that word once in the Bible. But if you don't believe in the Trinity, you are a heretic and in danger of God's judgment. The scripture, nowhere in it uses the phrase hypostatic union. But if you don't believe that Jesus was fully God and fully man, your sins are still held against you. The, the, the phrase perseverance of the saints is not listed as such in the Bible, but that phrase and other doctrines over and over are clearly taught by the scriptures. And we use these kinds of phrases to help us not have to explain the whole doctrine every time we talk about it. So we have a way to describe what we're saying when we say all these commands are summed up into this one phrase. And it's that way with church membership. You won't find it with that word. You will find the word member multiple times. We saw it in our text today. You'll see it throughout the Bible. But you won't find church membership as such. But you will absolutely find the biblical concept of local church membership in the pages of the New Testament. And so I would commend to you uh, that, that even though uh, we, we are not going to find it explicitly given in that command, I believe the Bible absolutely teaches the idea of church membership. First, the word. You think of the word member. We saw it in our text. We see it in other texts. There are, there are two or three main Greek words that sort of apply there. I'll give them to you and give you some references and some meanings, and then we'll move right on. But the word oikos, oikos which means the member of a household, somebody who's a, a participant in a family, that, that's mentioned several times. If Ephesians 2 is one of those places, verses 17 through 22. We are members of the household of God. And that's a member of a house. Specifically means a member, somebody who belongs there in that house. And it's speaking of the church and the people in it as members of it. Now, the word melos, which means members or part of a body. It's a member, a, a, a piece, a part of a body. It's a member of a body. Romans 12, which I mentioned before, lists that several times. So one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. And it's speaking of individual people in local congregations who belong to that congregation, who, who are, who are uh, identifiable parts of that. The word partaker is similar. Uh, it, it's used in Ephesians 3, sumetokos, uh, you can, a partaker and a member, a sharer uh, of the body and of the people group. In Ephesians 3, 6, it says this mystery is that the Gentiles are now fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers, sort of a, a synonymous use there, of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. So the word member is a Bible word. It shows up frequently. The New Testament gives us a lot of, uh, of, of that word, and it also develops the concept of biblical local church membership. In fact, I would challenge anybody who, who is sort of thinking this through to find me one instance where the New Testament commends the idea of a churchless Christian. You won't find it. A churchless Christian is, is not something that's commended anywhere in Scripture. The idea that we get of this individualistic idea of me and Jesus that's not a Bible concept. That, that's a, that is much more to do with our culture and our time than it does have to do with a good theology drawn from the Scriptures. I mean, it, it, uh, but now, membership as we see it in Scripture is not identical to the way that you think of the word member here today. Because if, if I had, by a show of hands, who's a member of Sam's and who's a member of Costco, we might get some warring factions here that would say they are all members of that particular tribe. But that's not the same kind of membership that this is talking about. This is not like that. This is like parts of a body. This is like members of a family. It's not the same thing as just where do you show up and who gets your money. That's not all this is about. And the Bible teaches that membership is far more than that. And I, I think there are several reasons. I'm gonna give you a, a really fast but, but pretty long list of reasons that we would look through scripture and say, this is taught in the Bible. This is plainly and clearly taught in the Bible. 
Um, the first is that, that records were kept in the New Testament church, including numeric records of conversions, which we saw when we were in Acts uh, just a couple months ago. Uh, you can find that in Acts 2 and in Acts 4, uh, verses uh, 237 through 47 and 44. And records were actually kept of who in the church, a record of a record, who in the church counted as a true widow in 1 Timothy. Uh, who is a widow indeed? Somebody who actually is in the church and is a widow and can be put on, they said, on the roll, on the list. So they've, they've actually got records that were being kept. Those records showed that they cared who was there and who was committed. In Acts chapter 6, we have the record of the full number of disciples coming to affirm the direction that the church should go in answer to the crisis of the fact that, the, that some widows were not getting fed and other widows were getting fed. And they had to know who that full number was for then Acts 6 to say the full number of the disciples showed up. Who is that? Well, they had a way of knowing. There were some who were supposed to be there and some who weren't. It was not whoever decided to show up that day. That's not the full number. Paul also seemed to know specifically who was meeting at churches. When he writes to the church at Rome, if you get to that chapter 16, you will see a long list of names where he's thanking everybody, saying hi to everybody. Why would he do that if he didn't know who was supposed to be there? He does know who is supposed to be there because they knew who was supposed to be there. In fact, throughout the New Testament, individual Christians are repeatedly identified with a specific local congregation as if they belong to that group. You'll find that in Acts 8.3, Acts 11.22. Um, it's all through Acts 12, 1, uh, 15, 3, and 4. You'll find it in Romans 16 that I just mentioned. Philippians 4, 15. Colossians 4, 15 and 16. Uh, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, the very first verse. Uh, you'll find it in Philemon 1, 2. In 3 John 1, 9. That Paul could look at a church and say, well, that's that church. I know who belongs there. And he could list their names. Well, how's he gonna do that if there's no local church uh, who's in and who's out on that list? But to me, one of the clearest arguments in the New Testament for local church membership is actually the, the use of church discipline and knowing who is of us and who is not of us. The Bible clearly teaches in 1 Corinthians 5 and in Matthew 18 that there may come a time when a church has to, has to put a member out. Somebody who once said they were with you and now have shown by their life to not mean that, to actually be living in a way contrary and against the gospel. But for them to do that, for, for, for the church to obey 1 Corinthians 5 or Matthew 18, you have to know who's in to know how to get somebody out. You can't just have somebody out who's not in. That's not how that works. Think of 1 John 2, 19, where it's really made plain. They went out from us because they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be plain that they are not all of us. There is a clear us and a clear they in that sentence. And it makes no sense to say that they went out from us if you don't know who you're talking about. So local church membership, knowing who is committed, is a part of what the Bible assumes a church will do. It's assumed on every statement of the Bible. But wait, there's even more to this. It's great. The Bible commands Christian leaders to be responsible for specific sheep. Acts 20, verse 28 says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. How are Ronnie, Rick, and I, how are the deacons who serve this body supposed to be accountable to what the Bible calls all of us to in ministry? How are we supposed to be accountable to any of that if we can't define with precision who that applies to? The Bible commands Christians to submit to specific leaders. Hebrews 13, 17, obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. How would you obey that command if you won't submit to a specific leader through membership? How, how, how will you obey that command then? Will you, will you submit to anybody who calls themselves your leader? Or will you identify this person is who I'm committed to and that person is committed to me? The Bible commands Christians to exclude false professors. We've already gone through those passages. But also, local church membership gives Christians a specific place to fulfill the commands to serve and minister to each other. Think of Romans 12, the very beginning, and all of the one another's of the Bible. A local church committed to each other has the, the context in which to live those out. It's not just everybody everywhere. It is specific people. 
A local church gives Christians a place to do that. It gives us the opportunity to actually live all those one another's out with each other. You can see Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, where the, the Lord gives apostles and prophets and evangelists to build up the church. And they're doing the equipping of the saints, who then the saints are going to do the work of ministry. And the work of ministry is going to build the body. All of that work is going to mature us to the full image of the Son of God, a mature manhood. How's that going to happen if we don't know who's committed and who's not? One author said, Separated from the body of Christ, our spiritual gifts are useless because they're meant for each other. I think a local church gives Christians all of those things. It also gives us a place to be accountable to each other. Someone to say, I I own the responsibility of encouraging and pressing you toward Christ. Well, there are lots of reasons that people maybe have given to you and to me for not wanting to join a church. Maybe they don't, like I said before, see, think they see modern church practices in Scripture, but I'm arguing here today that they actually are, they are drawn straight out of Scripture. But maybe, and maybe more often, people will say things like, well, I've just seen a lot of, of church leadership or church members go bad. And man, that's just enough to scare me off. I don't want to join something and then have to leave because there's a bunch of sinners there. And they might say something like, I, I don't know why I have to join to be committed. When they say that, I'm always reminded of like a young man who wants, to, who wants to get to know a young lady, but he's not willing to invest anything or definitely not willing to say this is headed toward marriage. We would not think much of someone like that at all. In fact, it's been, it's been used, uh, the illustration's been used, this is kind of like an ecclesiastical hitchhiker. Uh, somebody who won't commit is like an ecclesiastical hitchhiker who says, now look, you, you pay for the gas, you take all the risk, you do all the work, you insure the car, and I just want to ride, right? And I can get out anytime I want. I think it's a pretty good example of what it looks like when a person says, I'm going to go to that church, but I'm not going to commit. I'm going to be a part, quote, part, by just being there, but I'm going to do nothing in terms of showing up and, and giving what, what the Bible actually defines as Christian love. Do you understand Christian love is defined by commitment. Christ's commitment for his people, our commitment to each other. It's intrinsic in the very thing that we would be committed to each other. And if you will not commit, it will be hard for you to show love. You might might love in the theoretical, but you cannot love in the practical unless you have a commitment to real people. Now, I'm going to say something a little bit strong here. (laughs) So give me a little grace. And if you don't like what I'm saying, don't blame anybody but me and come find me afterwards. Tell me I'm, I'm, I'm a doofus for saying it. And I'll, I'll give one little caveat. This is not for, what I'm about to say is not for people who have been genuinely struggling with this and thinking through and kind of working through the process of is church membership biblical? I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to ecclesiastical hitchhikers right now. Somebody who's looked at the information and still decides, I'm just not gonna commit. Friends, I wanna love you enough to say the best thing for your soul, if that's who you are, is not that you come back here week after week, but that you go somewhere where you can join a church and commit to it. I am so convinced that you need church membership that I'm willing to stand in front of you and say, it's better that you go somewhere else where you can commit than keep coming here uncommitted. It's better for your soul and it's better for the church. I love you enough to say that. Cyprian actually said it really boldly. Uh, He's a third century saint or church bishop. He he said, Cyprian said, uh, no one can have God as a father who does not have a church as a mother, right? So he he was very plain that outside of a church, outside of being a part of the church, you should not run around calling yourself a Christian. That's a bold way to speak. Um, So I just want to encourage you to consider, I think the Bible plainly, particularly in 1 Corinthians 12, but plainly teaches the principle of church membership at the local level. So now I want to do a little bit of application here. If you are not a part of a local church, can I just ask you to take some time to consider why not? Why? If you've not ever joined a local church or haven't, are not a joined member of a church right now, why are you not a member? What is, what is your biblical reason? What's your biblical reason for not joining a church? How are you planning to obey all the commands all the one another's of Scripture, how are you planning to do that without the care of specific people invested in your life? 
And if you are a member of a church, if, if you are here today, are happily, gladly either a member of another church and you're our guest or a member of this church, you, you are a committed member. Can I just ask you to consider, do the, do the people of this church hold the priority in your heart that the scripture commands that we would have? Just think, just think with me for just a second about the one another's and the way they work. You, you are called by the Bible over and over. I'm going to list out the things. I'm not going to give the references because it'd take too long, but you are called to love one another, to seek peace with one another, to pursue unity with one another, to avoid strife with one another, to care for one another, both physically and spiritually. You are called to watch over one another. You are called to hold one another accountable. You are called to edify one another, to share time and resources and gifts with one another, to bear with one another, to pray for one another, to honor one another. Another and so much more. And listen, every one of those commands should have a face attached to it. None of those are theoretical. Not one of those is meant as some kind of lofty ideal out there that doesn't have a human body attached to the other end of it. Every one of those commands is meant for you to follow with a real person attached to it. And local church membership is the way that we do that. It's not hypothetical. Basswood members, these are your people right here in this room. This, this is, these are your people. So invest here. Don't wait until you feel it. Do it all right here. So I want to contend that church membership is biblical and membership matters. Other Christians actually need you more than you realize they do. And one day I think we're all going to find out that we needed other people way more than we thought we did. Now I would just pray that we could live this out here together. Many Christians think of the Christian life as something that's between me and Jesus. It's really just about me and Jesus. They think the church really has very little to do with that. It's sort of a place we go on Sunday. It's an optional weekly event. But when Jesus died on the cross, he didn't merely save a bunch of isolated individuals. Jesus died to purchase a bride. He died to save a people. In fact, Jesus, Jesus died so that sinners from all over the world, people from different ethnicities, languages, cultures, backgrounds, would be united together in him as one worldwide family of God. Jesus shed his blood so that we could become the blood-bought brothers and sisters adopted into the family of God. So in just a moment, we're going to turn to the table here. And I, I thought about this this week, and it, it dawned on me, Sometimes we focus on ourselves at the table exclusively, and it's true. It, it, it is right to think, the Lord saved me from my sins when you come to the table. But there is something else that's true and something else that's right when you come to the table. This is not a dinner for you and Jesus. This is a family meal. We are coming together, united, partaking at the same moment to express the unity that we have in Christ. This meal is meant to express the very truths that we've thought of. Jesus purchased a people for himself, and he's making a people, a body all over the world for himself. And he has invited us to partake of this meal to remember that we are not only united to him, but in common union with one another, we celebrate this time together, having been made the family of God. And as I close, I just want to say that the, the committed love of membership matters. As you come to the table, just remember, seeing other people come to the table, those are the people that you are to live out all of these commands with and express this love to. So thank God for the church and commit with me to serving her well by his grace. Let's pray together. Almighty God, Heavenly Father, by your grace, would you build your church here would you strengthen Basswood, Father? We, we, your people, we want to see that. Would you come and do that? Make much of Christ. Make much of him among us so that we might live in ways that show the glory and the love that we have received. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.